Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and joined with me again is Carrie Baldwin, co-author with me and Dick Clark and Norman Horn on Faith Seeking Freedom. And Carrie, we are going to talk about Christian morals and ethics. Yay. You ready to jump in? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so one of the reasons that we have this conversation is that we want to give our listeners and people interested in the book a little bit of like behind the scenes, a conversation about the topics, maybe a little bit of, you know, what motivated us to put the questions in the way that we do, that kind of thing. The other thing that it does is it's like the closest to, hey, I wonder who wrote that question that everyone will get because we don't spell out who wrote each question and we all contributed to each other's, you know, gave input to each other's questions and so forth. But because we're talking about chapter six, Christian morals and ethics, people know that you and I wrote most or all of the questions. I don't even have the list anymore. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll just act like we wrote, wrote the questions. Right. And the answers, I should say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the one thing that a lot of Christians have, and this was the one I'm pretty sure you wrote. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians have the question when they like encounter libertarians is that they believe that libertarians would like if they became a libertarian, they'd have to endorse things. So like, here's the question in the book. Well, if I became a libertarian, would I have to endorse prostitution? And so what's the answer to that? Nope. And so that really covers everything really that we need to talk about. So I think we'll just kind of wrap it up here. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Okay, okay, okay. I guess we really can't stop there, can we? Uh, no. We probably need to talk behind <laughs> the question. Uh, we did want to simply answer that question with a no, but our editors really wouldn't let us. They were like, no, like you have to explain yourself. All right, all right. Thanks, Elise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the idea behind do I have to endorse prostitution is really the question, are libertarians really just libertines? Meaning they just, you know, allow and either promote or endorse or in some way don't care about the moral behaviors of other individuals. Notice the question was not, do I have to become a prostitute? It was more like, well, do I have to endorse that other people do so? And so, Carrie, I'll let you sort of elaborate a little bit as to why the answer is clearly no. Yeah, well, first of all, libertarians draw a distinction between what should be illegal versus what should be considered immoral. So these are you know, this is a difference between ethics and legality. I think as Christian libertarians, we would say there are many immoral things, we call them vices, that we should never condone as being, you know, a desirable part of society. But does that then translate to should we make it illegal, right? So this is this is the prostitution question. This is the drug use question. This is the suicide question or the assisted suicide question, right? And I think, you know, associated with that, the question of whether libertarians are libertines, I have to say an emphatic no, because the non-aggression principle in and of itself would exclude libertines. But as far as those vices, those immoral things that we don't believe the government should involve themselves with, 
we would say they're they're not things that we would endorse. They're definitely things that we don't really want to be a part of society, but we think that there's a better way to handle them than through the strong arm of the law. Mm. So how do we deal with rights violations? Like, why is that the place that libertarians tend to stop with respect to punishment? Like, you know, we most Christians would not outlaw adultery. And so why is it that that's something that, you know, even Christians wouldn't outlaw, but at the same time, like murder is something that we would outlaw or make illegal? Right. Well, this goes to the non-aggression principle, right? We can't aggress against other people. And that's a physical action that is taken as a rights violation. You know, adultery is interesting because it's probably more of a, a violation of contract. And, you know, you deal with that through divorce, which is ending the contract, essentially. Mm-hmm. So we have the non-aggression principle. We also have proportionality. So you can't use more force in response to an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. So, but that's, yeah, I mean, rights violations, that's, the limited scope of civil governance. And I mean, beyond that, do we really want the government intervening in problems of of vices? And Mm -hmm. I think that we can demonstrate an emphatic no, we don't want them involved in that. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll lead to a few other questions here we'll talk about. I will just sort of interject or insert the defense of what Carrie said about adultery being a breach of contract. As Christians, we also both believe that marriage is more than a legal contract. But we're talking from the perspective of, you know, rights, legal order, things like that. So just for those of you who like, you know, align with us, just because we didn't say that we know that marriage is is a covenant between a man and a woman doesn't mean that uh, it's not also we're talking about it in terms of contracts in in that regard. So, yeah, just wanted to make that clear. (laughs) In the legal sense, it's a contract. Yeah. It's too bad we always have to say what we don't mean also, or like, oh, we also have to add <laughs> this to it. But, you know, I just wanted to cover our bases that we were, we were speaking uh, legal order related things. Yeah. So a lot of times, so people think like with vices, they're like, oh, well, if we allow drug use to run rampant, then things are going to get really, really bad because more people are going to do it. Now, drug use is, is in a sense, a, I wouldn't call it a special case, but it's becoming a very clear situation where, oh, okay, more people doing drugs isn't leading to more crime necessarily. And a lot of people are kind of coming around to that. But there are other vices or things that are illegal that are not rights violations. And they are things that Christians would look down upon. And I don't mean to look down upon. I shouldn't say it that way. They would be considered sins Mm -hmm. or even grievous sins. And so with libertarians, I would say that we don't we don't deny that human beings are plagued with the capacity for doing bad things or we're plagued with vices, I think is the, is the way the book puts it. It's just that we deny that the state's laws are the only ones that are able to restrain it properly. Would you, would you agree with the way I put that? Yeah, I mean, you've got, you do have this sense among many Christians, especially conservative Christians, I think that the role of government is to, quote unquote, legislate morality. Our favorite theologian who loves to hate on libertarians, Al Mohler, has said this a million times, that that's what the role of the state is to do, is to legislate morality. And although we would say that rights violations are immoral, right? If you can imagine a Venn diagram, rights violations are immoral. Mm -hmm. Not all things that are immoral are rights violations. And then the question becomes, well, 
is the proper role, the God-ordained role of civil governance to extend beyond mere rights violations. And I think if we take an honest look at scripture, we're hard pressed to make the case that it's the government's job to make sure that human beings are free of the plague of vices or, or their sinful behavior. I think a lot of Christians, they don't really object to individuals doing things that sort of harm themselves. But if you allow things like drug use for parents, then all of a sudden that harms their children or that harms their family. Or it, you know, if we have moral restraint sort of embedded in the laws, then, you know, the would-be profligate husband and father is going to be more restrained because there are legal, you know, parameters for him. So if we lift the restraints in society, I think the, the big question is like, well, what about the harms to others? And sometimes those harms are, you know, minimal or long-term or they're not like, you know, the father isn't violating his children's rights by sleeping around. And so, you know, we could criminalize that and therefore we could, quote unquote, protect his children. So this whole unrestraint, how do we protect people who are vulnerable? I think that's kind of at the heart of the real solid objections to lifting or deregulating vices. Yeah, well, I, I guess my my question in response to that would be, well, who's the vulnerable and are they even more vulnerable with these laws in place? I mean, take drug use as an example. I cannot imagine that if the government decriminalized all drugs tomorrow, that parents would have some sort of ethical crisis as to whether they should allow their kids to participate in drug use. I do think actually that one detriment to having laws criminalizing things just so that kids don't get their hands on them actually prevents parents from having necessary conversations with their kids about drugs, mm. about sex, about consent, about all those things because if they're, you know, if they're not legal, it's very easy to say, "Son, you don't do that because you could go to jail." And if the drug war has taught us anything, it's that that is not a deterrent. So if the conversation with your son is, hey, son, let's talk about why smoking marijuana before your brain is fully developed is a problem. You know, hey, son, let's talk about what consent is and the implications of sex outside of marriage and, and that sort of thing. Like by having these things illegal, it doesn't mean kids won't do them. It doesn't mean that the vulnerable won't be vulnerable to them. Mm -hmm. You know, drug addicts are the ones who are getting thrown in prison for illicit drug use. And they're they're the ones who are vulnerable. They're the addicts. They're the ones who need to go through recovery. And, you know, in countries where they have decriminalized or areas of the United States where they have decriminalized, what we find is that the stigma of illicit drug use is removed and those people are actually free and able to get into recovery programs without the threat of imprisonment. So, you know, as far as vulnerable populations are concerned, I think it's, I understand why we we think that making a law will protect the vulnerable, but there's no reason to believe that that is actually the case. Mm. 
We could also insert the discussion on minimum wage laws if that were part of this content. <laughs> right, Because, I mean, exactly. you know, just because there's a law doing it is at the ver- bare minimum is a virtue signal, mm-hmm. right? Like, hey, we politicians have, you know, signed into law that businesses have to pay a certain wage. Look at how we're helping the poor yeah. or something like that. And that's not necessarily the case, although it could have, you know, effects to that extent. It just may not be, you know, doing it in such a way that they are actually worthy of praise because they're certainly not. Right. So little aside here, does it make me a bad libertarian to use, hey, son, if you don't finish up your schooling, if you're a homeschooler, then the government's going to make us send you back to public school as a motivator? Am I a bad libertarian if we do that? (laughs) I think you're a bad father if you do that. (laughs) All right, because like, <laughs> I'm contemplating that direction some days. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, we, I, know, we, I know the feeling, but the, yeah, the story behind that is that you know, not kids aren't always as motivated as you want them to be. So hey, let's use something to <laughs> motivate them, and and that you know, that's in the arsenal. Right. It's just you know, hasn't been fired. So anyway, let's talk about some other societal things, and this is one of the things that a lot of left leaning Christians are going to talk about which is the concept of greed, mm. that there's this moral restraint on personal sins that the Christian right tends to sort of focus on or obsess over, really. But then you have the progressives. I don't like calling them progressives. They're not. They're not progressive. The regro- No, I can't be mean. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, like the, the Christian left, they really want to make sure that if there is if there's somebody who's wealthy, that they're not taking advantage of those who are poor. Or that people, if they, you know, sort of handle the sin of greed, then we will have better equality, it'll protect the weak, that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's there's a number of things that could be said, you know, in response to this. The, the thing that comes top of mind, especially as a libertarian, I mean, I think the right and the left would probably like argue about, oh, well, no, that's not a problem. And and the left would say, oh, but look at Amazon or look at this big company or whatever. And I'm not picking on Amazon. I'm just saying that's what they pick on. Right. And the libertarian has the advantage of saying, well, whoa, whoa, hold on here. Let's actually take a look at how the state really infects the society, if you want to call it. That's one way of using it. How does it affect and enable the wealthy or the big companies to actually do the things that the left issues, right? So like they have an issue with big company not paying their workers a certain amount. Forget the concept of a living wage for a moment, but just like, hey, they're paid really poor wages and they have pretty poor working conditions in America. And the left has, I would even say a rightful grievance or complaint or something that actually is, you know, resembles pursuing real justice, whatever that may look like. I'm going to be pretty vague about that because the details are important. The libertarians will say, well, here is how the state enables such things. Here is how the state gives enormous advantages to big companies in you know, certain areas and certain types of like tax breaks and all these other things that enables them to you know, treat their workers in certain ways or it actually overregulates them in certain ways. And there's the other side of the equation, which is the state puts these workers in the type of position where this is their only option, right? And there could be better options if the market were a lot more free. So the government really doesn't protect the weak. 
it really enables the wealthy to be more in that advantage. That's the one thing that when I argue with people on the left, they just don't seem to realize how the state actually enables this inequality, this sort of way in which the big corporations tend, not always, but tend to do the things that they don't like. I don't know if you have any further thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think you've answered it from the the libertarian perspective. I want to throw in a Christian angle to it. You know, the two greatest moral commandments in scripture is one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor like yourself. And I'm thoroughly convinced that what the conservative right does is tries to use the civil law in order to get people to fulfill that first commandment, to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that the left, liberal Christians, try to use the civil law in order to fulfill the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to emphasize, re-emphasize, because I've said this on here before, I want to re-emphasize the fact that the law of God doesn't actually make us moral. And so there's no reason to believe that using the civil law, which is reserved for rights violations, will make a moral people. It's not going to make liberals love God better. It's not going to make conservatives love their neighbors better. And so we can talk all we want about greed and poverty and some of these other things that, you know, we don't like about society or we don't like about human nature, but the civil law is not going to solve the problem and it always makes it worse. That's really well said. That's great. So, you know, I think one of the reasons that civil government can't do what you just described is, you know, people have this view. My, I have a friend, a close friend of mine who leans left, although he's, you know, he believes in capitalism, but he believes that the government and, and many of people like him, I can't speak exactly for him, but many people like him believe that the government is necessary or supposed to regulate the market. You know, we can't have unregulated market. I mean, aren't we supposed to have rules? And, you know, my thought is, well, of course there are rules. Where do the rules come from and who are making those rules? And the thing that comes up for me when I think about, well, let's regulate Amazon or let's regulate whatever, whomever it is, right? And again, we're picking on Amazon because that's the big person to pick on right now, Amazon and Apple, you know, let's pick on them or or let's regulate them. Let's not pick on, oh, that's picking on them, whatever. So let's regulate them because if we do that, it'll thwart greed, it'll protect the people who are on the margins and all that. So here's the question. And we we talked about this from a different chapter. It has to do with like the the nature of governments and Edmund Opitz quote. It's like the government isn't just this like faceless entity. These are actual individuals. Well, how are they making the right decisions? How do we know that they're making the right decisions? Are they making the right decisions because they have a inherent sense of justice and they're just, you know, going after snotty companies, some people will get that reference, uh, who are just not doing well. And they're just like, hey, you guys need to be regulated because you're not doing well. And they just have this, you know, inherent sense of justice. Or are they doing it because it enables their own agenda? or the agenda or the livelihood of those in like their family. I mean, we know and and both the left and the right would even acknowledge and admit this and even, you know, point it out when they see it that there is a lot of there are a lot of politicians who are very well connected to the wealthy companies, 
to the big corporations. And so there's an advantage for them to do certain types of regulation. Also on the flip side, you have things like the very same regulations were sort of written by the big corporations because what happens when big corporations help write regulations that restrain themselves, it sort of like helps them manage the costs of doing business. And those are costs that they can incur without much of a hit or they can sacrifice in some other way. Whereas smaller businesses like mom and pop shops or you know even medium to large businesses as opposed to big, huge corporations, mega corporations, that they cannot, you know, abide by. So it's, an, it's a competitive advantage that the state gives big corporations by simply being involved in their regulation. I remember when Obamacare was passed, the Affordable Care Act, that this was like a big gift to big insurance. Because it basically said, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of new free, cu- we're going to give you a bunch of guaranteed customers because everyone has to have insurance. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Well, it's just like ridiculously obvious to me that those kinds of things happen. I mean, I realize even if you just take them at their word and say, hey, we just want everybody to be insured. It's like, do you not realize what you're doing here? So when you have this whole idea that democratic government is supposed to regulate the market in a certain way, it's like, how do you know it's doing it well? Wouldn't it be better if we could just like all regulate the market? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that people really don't understand when, you know, because a libertarian isn't saying that we should let, you know, greed and misbehavior run rampant. What we're saying is that the best regulator of the market is the consumer. And the government, when the government intervenes and tries to regulate, they're actually taking that power away from the consumer to regulate. Mm -hmm. And as far as, you know, reaching out to our more left-leaning friends, first of all, I just want to say I sort of missed the days of Occupy Wall Street and the 99% when they Mm -hmm. were making the connections between big corporations and the regulatory agencies and that there was an unholy alliance between the two. But one of the people that I really think is super helpful in explaining why a freed market is essential to enabling this, you know, peaceful, creative, compassionate economy is Gary Chartier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who he's considered a, a left libertarian, but he's got his his book, Markets Not Capitalism, where he talks about, you know, very frankly, the problems with the system that we have today. And if we're going to call that capitalism, then, you know, he's he's ready to, to throw it out. But he really talks about those more left concerns about, you know, the environment and social justice and, you know, how do we deal with abuse of children and things like that? How do we deal with those things with the freed market? How do we regulate in spite of the absence of government? Mm-hmm. And I think he answers those questions Wonderfully. In fact, it was the it was the thing that convinced me to finally embrace the idea of a completely unregulated market. So, you know, when we as libertarians are talking about regulation, we're talking about putting power back in the hands of the people, in the hands of the consumer where it belongs, instead of government taking that away from us. Yeah. No, that's all well said. And and uh he's definitely in the forefront of helping us think clearly about what kind of markets we actually want mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of 
somewhat parsing the words and saying, hey, here's, at least that's how I've experienced reading him. It's like, oh, okay, that's the kind of market I want. And Mm -hmm. whether we call it capitalism is sort of a preference to whether or not we think that term is redeemable. Right. Many of us think it is, but, you know, sometimes, you know, depending on the conversation, it's just better to leave it out and talk about the actual thing um, instead of like, what does it, what should we call it? You know, that kind of thing. So the last thing we want to talk about, we've been talking about the vulnerable and those on the margins, people who are either victims or those in need, whether it's a person who's a drug addict, you know, or whether it's actually people like orphans and widows and things like that. And what tends to come up for a lot of people is the idea of a safety net and caring for the poor. And if we have a society where we're just allowed to do anything we want, then somehow the mind, especially for the conservatives, but even for the left, because they're also concerned about this kind of thing, the mind just kind of goes toward societal breakdown. And what we really can't have happen is people living in destitution. And so there has to be some sort of safety net. And so the idea here is that people envision a world where if we have a minimum amount of laws to help people in welfare, that's where the right would sort of like leave things like, okay, minimal state for like, you know, the actual destitute. And then you have people on the left saying, no, we need robust systems. We need the government to sort of, you know, prop up everybody so that nobody falls through the cracks and so that everybody has opportunity and can, you know, make their way up the ladder, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question is, how do we care for the poor without something like a safety net? And and again, I've often conceded that if I'm having a conversation with somebody and the kind of state that they want, you know, the kind of big government they want, if they really want one, is like for the government to build the roads and keep people from becoming destitute, I'm in. Like, if that's the state you want, I'll make that trade if we can get rid of everything else. Mm. So that's my little like concession. At the same time, I think if those are the last things that we do, um, we say like peel the state away and, you know, take away all the other things, we won't need the state, first of all, to help the poor, I don't think. And we probably wouldn't help need the state to build the roads. Right. So there's a little bit of like a trick to my concession, but I'm like, look, for the sake of argument, if like, seriously, it's like 1% of the national budget, the federal budget, or it's like 1% to 3% of the federal budget. I looked it up yeah. last year or something that is about poverty. Now, roads and stuff is is much more major. But like, look, if we have a 98% smaller state, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think when we talk about the welfare state, we have to also include corporate welfare in on that. And corporate welfare and, you know, that's that's money that is going to colleges or agriculture or war spending or, you know, that sort of thing. You want to get rid of like those things. Awesome. Let's get rid of that because that is way more, like you were saying, way more spending than, Mm -hmm. you know, food stamps. I will say from personal experience though, because I've been on food stamps after my divorce, I had to get on, on food stamps. From the perspective of somebody who was in poverty, and you still technically am, food stamps are a double-edged sword. They de-incentivize you from actually building your, your income. Because as soon as you make more than $50 from your, your previous month, because you have to report every single month, if you make $50 more, you risk losing some of your food stamps. You risk getting that knocked down. And so... I do have a problem with that quote-unquote safety net 
the way it operates right now because it de-incentivizes people from actually, you know, building up their income and and mm. climbing up that ladder and getting themselves out of poverty. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that, you know, if we had our choice to actually start stripping away and reducing the size of government starting tomorrow, I would say we go after the the big numbers like the people on welfare, the individual people on welfare should be the last thing that we deal with, I think. Yeah, and it also should be said for our American listeners that, or for, I guess for anybody who wants to know how it works, is that usually, now there are federal funds that go toward this, but like usually the the welfare is state-related. And so even if we abolish federal welfare regulations in America, that wouldn't mean that there is nothing on the state level. Or even if states all abolished you know, their welfare for individual citizens, that doesn't mean that cities can't do certain things and have certain right. programs. And you know, the local or the better is the way I say it. Yeah. And I think, you know, we do have private charities. We have plenty of private charities who are capable of creating that that safety net and who want to create that safety net. But, you know, state regulation gets in the way. I mean, I remember one time very early on, I had just gotten on food stamps and I also went to go visit a, um, oh, what's it called? A food, what are those things called? Food oh, bank? Yeah, food bank. And in order to get food from the food bank, they had to verify that I was on food stamps and they just took, they took a quantity of money out of my food stamps for the, what, what I got from the food bank. So it's, it's a complete double-edged sword. Like the state doesn't allow those people who want to voluntarily provide a safety net. They don't allow them to operate the way they need to operate. And again, we should get them out of the way. They do a way better job of providing for that. And I think I want to emphasize that as libertarians, we're not saying we shouldn't take care of the poor or that we should leave them to themselves or that they need to bootstrap it until they're successful. We're saying that the state is not a good way to provide that safety net. Yeah. You know, we recently did an interview with James Whitford of the True Charity Initiative, and he is doing amazing work. Our website actually has a series of articles that features his organization in a, in a certain way. And so I would strongly recommend that individuals, you know, look toward that. I'll also have to note, you know, your experience there talking about the the incentives to not earn any money as much as 50 bucks, my goodness. There's a perverse incentive happening right now in 2021 where there are stimulus, there's stimulus money and unemployment money going to people who are are out of work because of COVID that could, in theory, go back to work, but they're not because it's an extra three or six hundred dollars a week. Right. A week. That's not yeah. nothing, right? So, not, yeah. you know, and you know, you you sit here and you look, like I can't imagine, Carrie, the situation you were in. You're like, I can't even earn 50 bucks. Like, what? Yeah. And so that situation is a dire situation, but we can even sort of see what's happening and the effects of it now with in a different situation where there are people who actually have good work that they could go do, mm-hmm. but they can't they can't go back. In fact, um, I actually know somebody who earlier in 2020, when people were allowed to go back to work, you know, reopen safely in that slow, methodical way that our governors thought were safe, whatever, their employees were actually... Like, wait, we don't want to go back to work. We're getting $600 a week extra to stay home. And, you know, it's like, oh, what do you do with that? You know, and the the idea, uh, at least that I was 
that was given to me was something along the lines of, well, that's how they're going to try to sneak in doing a $15 minimum wage. It's like, well, if employers can just pay $15 an hour more or $15 an hour in a week, that's uh, that's $600. Um, and so it was sort of like a way to incentivize employers to just pay more, mm. which isn't quite working. So now they're doing other means, at least in my state. But right. I want to end on a note that I have, I mean, I've harped on this quite a bit, which is the, how do how do we care for the poor? And you have the left saying, well, we need, you know, sort of a welfare state. And by welfare state, they don't mean corporate welfare, even though they're the ones who enable most of it. Right. Well, that's not true. They didn't, they enable it as much as the right does. But the right is like, no, we, it needs to be the church and it needs to be private individuals doing charity. And, you know, when Jesus speaks to uh, his fellow Israelites and to the people whom he's speaking to, his followers, you know, Jesus is talking to individuals and they are supposed to take up the personal cause of caring for those on the margins. Well, I, I think there's another way. And I think that, of course, that's true, that we are individually supposed to take upon ourselves some responsibility for those who, in, in our sphere who need to take, be taken care of. That doesn't mean we take care of them. That might mean we fund somebody who can take care of them. So we have charity. But it also means that we are allowed to form groups and relationships and institutions that actually do these things. So we're thinking of nonprofits. Mm-hmm. The state is one institution that in theory is an option, and it certainly is an option in our in today's world. But for the Christian, it's not an option if you're trying to do this voluntarily and without coercing others who may or may not want to, who, who may not want to or share the vision. So the alternative is not just that we have you know, voluntary charity or that we have the government do it. The other option is that what if we could live in a world where this is so incredibly rare that there's a person who is not flourishing? Wouldn't we want to live in that world? And that world to me looks like individuals creating opportunities for the poor to not lift themselves up by their own bootstraps, but to give them a helping hand, not in a like charity only way, but give them the opportunity to be participants in a, in a, in a human flourishing world. Right. So that could be uh, a Christian business person starting a business that could mean a person doing, you know, nonprofit work where those people are, are being given a job and given skills so that they can then start their own businesses. It doesn't have to be about entrepreneurship, although that is a very major prominent movement in evangelical world is to enable the poor to become entrepreneurs. And I think that's really important because that's truly an important role. Uh, But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the option is not to have charity or welfare. The option for human flourishing is far more varied than just those two options. And I think we sell ourselves short when we when we just respond to, well, the government shouldn't do it. That should be churches or individuals. It's just, it's way beyond that. Right. Because at some point, I mean, you think about the way the poverty rate has plummeted in the last three decades uh, in our lifetimes. It's plummeted. Mm-hmm. It's really, really small, right? So imagine that keeps going and it probably will taper off a little bit near the end where we get to the point where no one is truly destitute and poor or that those who are, it's temporary or for those who are, it's like, it's not that many people. Can you imagine like churches not, again, I'm not saying this will actually happen, but I can just sort of imagine a world where churches don't have as many poor mouths to feed, Mm -hmm. right? And so that we're actually integrating people into our society. So where we are actually in a wholesome community rather than there are the people who are haves 
and then there are people who are have nots and the haves help the have nots. Like we all have something to give, right? Well, and Doug, have you have you heard about the tiny houses that people are trying to make for the homeless? Yeah. I think that's that's one example, like one real world example of what you're talking about, right? We can actually get people off the street and into a tiny house that at least sets them in the right direction so that they can start building their wealth and getting to a point where they could actually afford to move out of that tiny yeah. house. Yeah. And those things cost like, you know, peanuts compared to, you know, all of the tax revenue that is that is spent supposedly to unquote, to combat <laughs> yeah quote unquote Wandered, spent to, to, to right to combat poverty it's like uh no there are people out there who are so innovative and creative and actually compassionate that oh. they have this idea they might actually build tiny houses for homeless people so that they have a place to stay and actually you know restart their their lives and somewhere out there is a politician saying that makes me look bad so i have to regulate it out of existence right and it's sold as oh we need to make sure that those tiny houses are safe for those poor people and you know so they they regulate it so that it jacks well, up it's the probably cost safer than it- the underpass I, right, exactly. The underpass. I mean, you've seen those pictures with the under and with you know they they add those little concrete spikes yeah, so that you don't have yeah. people sleeping under the underpass. It's like, oh, you're you're very kind. I'm uh-huh. glad that you're yeah. ending poverty. Oh, I don't understand. Like, you know how like there's some things that are outlawed because certain industries want there to be like higher regulations to you know create barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. What what industry? I can't imagine an industry that says. Oh, we can't have people making a profit off of poor people because that eats into our profits. I'm like, <laughs> right. yeah. Anyway, I don't know. It's just it's it's just nuts to me how enabling that the state is to all kinds of things, enable to enabling vices, to enabling people to be greedy if they're you know in corporations. One thing we haven't talked about, which Norman and I have talked about in in passing, is uh, the existence of unsound money creates very perverse incentives on even morality basis. So yeah. uh, we'll have to keep that to another episode. But yeah, well, Carrie, I think we've I think we've exhausted the discussion on this chapter, and I know we'll uh, see you back for another episode on facing freedom and, of course, some of the other topics that you've been working on. So thanks for joining me to discuss. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 